Welcome to Rogue Bogues, my journey series, this is episode five. This will be predominantly about the 2004 Athens Olympic Games. So let's get rogue. First off, we start with getting an invite to the Boomers camp, the Australian national team camp. Hadn't been part of the program ever, so I was kind of going into it blind, not knowing really what to expect. One thing I did know was there'll be a lot of players in that camp itself of 20, 25-odd uh, players that I looked up to as a kid and that I watched and that were NBL superstars. A few of them played in Europe. A few of them had small stints in the NBA and names like Shane Heal, Tony Ronaldson, Jason Smith, CJ Bruden, Brett Wheeler, Brett Maher, so on and so forth. And guys that I supported from eight, nine, ten years old. So that was kind of surreal, even though I was coming from the University of Utah and, and being interacting with NBA players at times, it was still a really cool achievement to be on the same court as some of these fellas. So I remember how hard the camps were. Brian Gorgian was the head coach. So for those of you that remember, early 2000s was kind of a dark period for the Australian Boomers national basketball team. We generally had owned or have always owned New Zealand, always been kind of the better team on this side of the world within Oceania. And it was the first time that they They'd put it, put it on us, really, and it was in the qualifications for the 2002 World Championships, which ended up being in in Indiana in the US. They beat us in those qualifiers, I believe, in 2001, which knocked us out as a national team of going to that World Championships. I think it was one of the only ones we've missed in a number of years. Um, I'd have to go back and research how far back, but it was it was a... I still remember what the AIS at the time I was, and it was kind of a dark day for the basketball program of Australia, and a lot of disappointed people, our national team coaches, the junior coaches were disappointed. Everyone was kind of disappointed and didn't get to go to that World Championships as a country. So Brian Gorgian then came in to somewhat steady the ship, one of the one of the toughest and most winningest NBL coaches of all time. So it was a, a natural fit, and he was great. I just do remember, though, those camps were no joke. It was two-a-days two to three hours in the morning, two to three hours at night, and they'll full on. There was um, these days, it's a little bit different where you can now, generally one of your sessions is a, a contact session where you do a lot of live stuff and, and physical and knocks on the body. And then generally the other session on that day will be more shooting, more mental, more running through sets, still at speed and still intense, but a bit more of a rest as far as the wrestling and hitting and screening and all that. And that's where it's changed today. Back then, none of that. It was both sessions were as intense as the other. Both were physical, guys were banged up. I mean, I remember those camps, a lot of guys would just get hurt because it, it was just so physical and intense and everyone was trying to make that national team squad. So I definitely remember that. It was an experience that, as I said, I, I was kind of flying blind into it. I didn't know that I'd make the team. I was coming from a pretty good year at the University of Utah and into a program where I'd be kind of the young star, but it's still the unknown. I didn't know if I'd make the squad. I didn't know if I'd be in the rotation. I didn't know if I'd play minutes and that was part of the battle. I felt like I had a good camp. I still wasn't at a stage with my body where I could wrestle day in, day out with the likes of a Tony Ronaldson or a, or a Paul Rogers or a Brett Wheeler because they were just physical grown men and I was still kind of growing into my body. I was 20 years old at the time and it was that was the challenging part to do that day in, day out is hard as, at a young age and I was still kind of getting in the weight room as much as I could at the University of Utah to get that body better and I could hold my own for a day or two and then you'd have that day where you just physically were dominated by some of these bigger guys and that was just a good learning curve and that definitely got me on, on the right path to, to respecting the weight room and making sure that I get 
you know, as strong as I can in those off seasons and whenever I'm in the weight room. So just a small tidbit there. But like I said, I thought I had a chance to make the team. I end up making the team and I, I then end up starting at the Athens Olympics down the track. Uh, first off, we have some friendlies to, 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 to go and I thought, you know, I'm starting in these friendlies. Is coach trying things out? I, I, I've got to make sure that even though I'm starting that I, I haven't got that mindset of like I'm starting for the national team I've made it because you know in the friendlies it could just be he's trying different lineups and um, ended up earning that spot I guess it was it was a great experience that that team was pretty welcoming to to a young fellow like myself even though it took me time to fit in I was obviously part of a huge generation gap with a lot of those fellows all all were towards their late 20s early 30s and I'm I'm 19 20 coming in I, I remember I had a I had a mullet you know I was the wog boy with the mullet I had blonde tips at the bottom of it I kind of like I am today, marched to the beat of my own drum and did my own thing. So they um, accepted me for the most part. It took me some, some time to fit in and open up with the group, but it was a it was a great experience. So New Zealand was my first foray into international basketball, the New Zealand Tall Blacks national team. And for those of you that remember, that was probably the pinnacle of their program. They were they went to the 2002 World Championships, as I discussed. I think they finished fourth. They had their best run in in basketball history for that nation, and and they were tough. They they were a team that ran a kind of a regimented type offense that was real methodical and mechanical, but they had a lot of reads out of it, and they just would would would, would run you to you know run it run it to death and just grind you out. And they were physical. They were strong. They had bigs that could shoot. Um, they had some guards with some fire in them, like Mark Dickel. They had a bunch of shooters, Kirk Penny, Phil Jones. Um, and they had obviously the big fella, Perra Cameron, in, inside that would just absolutely obliterate people on screens. I mean, he was equivalent of a of a rugby player playing basketball with a, with a beautiful shooting touch. So he would just lay people out, out on screens. And if you helped for a second, he'd pick and pop and be wide open from three. So they, they had a really good system. They were tough to play against. So we go out to New Zealand in a, in a three-game series. Friendly series just to um, get some experience with that group, a new boomers group, and obviously they they were going to the Olympics as well because they'd qualified. We had both qualified for the Oceania region based on them finishing fourth at the 2002 World, which was kind of kind of a good thing for both of us. So it did us a little bit of favors, um, and we go to New Zealand to play them. And I remember it was a tough series. It was uh, physical, intense everything you want it to be for an international series between Australia and New Zealand. For the Americans out there, I mean, think a rivalry similar to, you know, America versus Canada or even back in the day with, you know, America versus uh, Russia and something. That's that's the Australia-New Zealand rivalry. It's, it's as intense as you can get from any aspect of international sport, whether it's cricket, basketball or – you know, even just um, throwing marbles. If those two, two countries are playing, it's it's usually pretty intense. So, go over there. And I remember the first game I have. I'm obviously starting. I'm pumped. This that and um, the national anthem comes. So we we uh, we sing our national anthem. We lock arms, and then New Zealand get ready to do the haka, which is a, obviously a traditional dance that's done by most sporting teams in New Zealand. And I guess a few of our fellows said, look, we're going to walk up to the half-court line, show them the respect for their what they're doing, but at the same time, let's not take a back step. Let's not show we're intimidated by, by any, any ways. And we did that, and I got a welcome to that game by, I believe it was Dylan Boucher. So, you know, anyone that knows what the is about, you know, they, they start to move closer and closer towards the other half of the court, the other half of the field as, as it goes on. And by the end of the hucker, Boucher was – Probably the last 15 seconds of it was basically I could feel the spit on my face from him yelling the hucker, um, and he finished nose to nose with me. And the crowd got on its feet. 
and I, I wasn't moving. Boucher wasn't moving. And we're nose to nose for a good five, six, seven seconds. There's, there's video and photos of it online, I believe. And so it took his team and um, and the boomers, my team, to, to come and pull us apart and then go back to our benches to prepare for, for, the, for the jump ball. But I still remember that was probably calculated on their part. I believe they usually pick out a young fellow that they want to try to intimidate or mess with, but I still remember that to this day. It actually fired me up even more. I came out and had, had a few dunks early and was yelling and screaming back at him. So, it was um, definitely an experience I remember. That was kind of the first time I'd, I'd learned how crazy the actual tours were. So, we end up winning the series, I believe 3-0. I don't think we lost a game on that on that three-game series. And, and our last game is at, I believe it was at a place called Dunedin, Dunedin. In New Zealand, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but it was, I believe it was Mark Dickel's hometown, really small country town, not much going on there. And one of the first kind of welcomes to the national team off the court escapades was, you know, we're a pretty loose group and a lot of banter, a lot of guys giving each other shit, doing crazy stuff, pranking each other, all that, all that kind of normal stuff that happens on a, on a sporting team. But I remember we go to a, after the game, there was one pub in town. It was a small country town. There was one pub, one bar. That was it. There was nothing else there. So everyone basically that was part of that game was there. The media people, um, you know, the singer that sung the national anthem was there. Like everyone was there because it was the only place you could really go. So I remember we were having some drinks, had a meal, and somehow the New Zealand Tall Blacks were there. We were there. Kind of the, the, the series had a bit of scuffles back and forth, but now that it was over, it was kind of friendly again. And that, that was a cool thing about the rivalry for the most part. Like when you got most of those guys off the court, it was it was pretty friendly and, you know, Australia and New Zealand, similar ideals and it um, had a few drinks together and whatnot. And somehow guys were playing darts and then it turned into guys throwing darts at each other. And I don't know how it started or why it started, but basically – Guys were going up and taking their shirts off near the dartboard and it was kind of a, a game to see who could take the most darts into their chest and who could who could take a dart and let it hang off once it hit their, their peck or their stomach that it was actually – and there were guys that were taking darts and it would hit you and just be hanging out. And it was just like, what are you guys doing? Like, this is crazy. And, and they were just going back and forth with it. And I still remember a few teammates of mine had 10, 15, 20 darts dart holes, little little piercings all over their body. And I was like, wow, this is the national team. These guys are nuts. But that, that, they're the kind of things that used to happen when guys were having a few too many brews or wines or, or bourbon and Cokes. But um, that was that was eye-opening to an extent. I remember, so after that, our first camp was at AIS. Our second camp was at Gosford, New South Wales. Then we played the New Zealand series. Then our last camp before we went off to Europe for the tournament was um, at the Gold Coast. So we go up to the Gold Coast, have a five or six day camp, intense, whatever. And then at the end of that, they organize, you know, one of those little kind of catamaran yacht type things just for our team. We had a barbecue on it and then had a bunch of, bunch of drinks on there and cruised around kind of the rivers of the Gold Coast and Brisbane for a couple of hours. And then I remember we come back to, I believe it was the, the Gold Coast Casino at the time. We go there and go to the bar to have a few more drinks. And it was, it was, I think it was a Saturday night or a Friday night. So very, very busy. We couldn't, you couldn't order a drink for the life of you. It was one of those places where there was like 150 people at the bar trying to get a drink and guys slurring their words and, and the waitress just trying to do the best she can or the waiter trying to do the best he can. But, um, I guess there was a point where we, we couldn't order a drink for the life of us. And one of my teammates, Martin Catalini, he was a, a great fella, really fun to be around. I'm sure he wouldn't have an issue with this story, but. I guess he was getting really impatient about having a drink and we're all at the bar, turn around for a second, turn back around and Cat has jumped over the bar somehow and just pouring himself a jug of beer for us. 
and no one really noticed. Everyone was like, what's going on here? And then um, an Islander fella who was security, big guy, guy we're not going to mess with, basically just grabs him by the collar and, and just drags him out of the casino. Um, we, get, we get thrown out. Um, we don't leave him out, out to dry. Obviously, we leave with him. But kind of shenanigans that go on, on on some of these tours. And that that was pretty tame for the most part, just, just being silly. But there are some teams that definitely go over the line, not not that I've been a part of, but there are, as we know, some some things that happen sometimes on sporting tours that are not the proudest moments for a lot of athletes. We didn't get to those, those points very often, I, I don't believe, but just some silly things that happen with, I guess, a, a group of guys, alcohol, testosterone, after a long tour of training. You know, it's just one of those things you got to deal with. So after the last game, in the Gold Coast, we then have four or five days to, to kind of go home, pack, and get ready for the tour. We all meet at the airport, our respective airports. I think we all flew to Sydney first, wherever we were from. So, Melbourne, Brisbane, wherever you were from, you, you met in Sydney, and then we had an international flight to Italy first off. We had a pre-Olympic tournament in Italy, which was which was pretty cool. They put us up in, I think, the southern part of Italy on, on the coast there and um, put us in this resort that was kind of the top of the cliff top, ocean view, Mediterranean. What could be better, right? It's part, part of playing basketball, and I've told many times that the, the places that I've managed to, to see and the things that I've managed to do based on basketball were, you know, bucket list type things and life-changing at times. So, definitely very, very lucky and blessed to be able to see things that um, I definitely wouldn't have had a chance to see if it wasn't for basketball. So, people always relate to basketball and money and fame and all that kind of stuff and being a pro athlete. But sometimes it's the smaller things that you see. You see some small towns in Italy, you, you see how they make their pasta, how they make their food, and you get access to, to, to a little bit of that more than you probably should because you're you're with a sporting team and you know you might go to a small town that wants to, it's really proud of what they do and they want to want to really impress you. So you get those opportunities all around the world and I definitely cherish those throughout my career. So we get to Italy playing a pre-Olympic tournament. First thing Leading up to the the tour, so the final team had been finally announced, the, the team that was going to Europe. They finally made their cuts right after that Gold Coast camp. I'll make the team obviously doing pretty well, get told by the veteran leadership group or, or basically everyone that had been part of a Boomers campaign, hey, mate, we do this. We have a, a tradition where we kind of initiate our rookies into the program. You need to do some sort of performance or whatever you want to do for the group. So it could be a song, could be sing a song, it could be you, you know, examples of what some guys have done is guys have done card tricks, guys have done magic tricks, guys have done songs, guys have told jokes, guys have done kind of acts. Um, we've had all kinds of crazy shit. Some of it I probably can't get too dip in depth into because <laughs> some of it was absolutely crazy. But it's a tradition we have with the Australian boomers and it's it's been carried on since as far as I've heard back and it's been that, that flames continue to be a light through every campaign. Now, it's only for major tournaments, so it's only for a world championships or an Olympics. It's not for a qualified. It's not for friendlies, but it's something that's really cool and bonds the group. So, Anyway, I get told about this, you're going to do something and I'm I'm kind of good at basketball and that's about it. So, I'm like, I was in a panic about this thing and I'm like, what do I do? I'm not a good singer or I'm not confident singing. Um, I can't really just go up there and, and talk shit. So, I need to figure something out. And that had me more nervous than the Olympic Games at one point, to be honest with you. That had me, <laughs> had me stressing. So, I end up partnering with David Anderson, the, the, the world famous David Anderson good friend of mine, one of the winningest basketball players of all time from Australia. He's played all around the world and managed to to bring home trophies from a bunch of different countries. He played in the NBA for a couple of years and, and then finished his career in the NBL last season with the Illawarra Hawks. I think he's still trying to go again, funnily enough. So, we'll see how that all goes. But anyhow, we, we partnered up because it was Dave Anderson's first 
national team campaign. We decided to do a song. We did Jimmy Barnes, Working Class Man with a Twist. So we basically changed all the words on the song to take the piss out of different teammates and coaches on the team. So we did a pretty good job of it. It took us it took us a while. It took us a meeting th- three, four, five times. We met for, for for an hour each when we weren't at training or had some spare time writing the lyrics and doing all that and putting it all together. And he had one verse, I had one verse, and then we did the chorus together and it was another verse, another verse chorus. And it went down pretty well. I mean, the, they, the fellas enjoyed it, but it was, like I said, that had me more nervous than playing basketball at Olympic Games. And it is to this day one of the best traditions I've been a part of. I still remember just last 2019, sorry, was a first for a lot of guys and there were some very, very interesting um, performances in that era of rookies and some are great, some are terrible. I'll give you an example of one. There was a very, very good NBL player from the 90s and 2000s. Didn't play in the NBA, so you can do your own research and come to your own conclusions of who you think this might be. Was a superstar in the NBL for a number of years. Played uh, for a few NBL teams, a few in Queensland, a few in maybe one in Sydney and, 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 and Melbourne. So anyhow, rumor has it, one of the wives' tales that just carries on from the program was, now excuse my language, that he was getting railed about doing his rookie night, was nervous about it, and was getting killed by all the um, all the veterans. And apparently he got up in front of the group and this was his performance. Hickory dickory dock, the vets can suck my cock. Excuse my language, but verbatim, that was that was the, <laughs> what he did. So it just gives you a feel for how crazy and out there some of this stuff is there was a rumor that one guy got up there and drank a whole bottle of um jim beam or jack douglas or one of the you know one of those bourbon 750 more bottles and just sculled it and then basically passed out not long after but that was his performance so i think mine D- dave's and i were a bit more tame than that so there were some awful ones too some some guys told jokes that they got no laughs and <laughs> stuff like that so that just goes with the flow but Anyhow, moving on to that, we play play pretty well in that tournament. I remember, I think I'm, I was the MVP of that tournament, All-Star 5. I can't remember. It was only a two or three game tournament. I believe we lost to Italy in the final. This is one of the few times Italy was really good. They had a really solid squad. They were well put together. They ended up beating the US not long after playing us in a friendly lead up. And that was the infamous US team that had a lot of off-court dramas with Carmelo and Alan Iverson and Stefan Marbury and the head coach Larry Brown, where there was reported to be a lot of turmoil there between the coach and the players. But um, they ended up beating the US going into the Olympics, which gave them a great confidence boost. So we end up finishing that tournament, go off to the Olympics, and that's a whole whole nother deal so you, you get to the olympic village you're getting all your gear you're getting this it's kind of exciting there's a buzz in the air and once you're in the actual village it's it's crazy it's something you it's hard to describe at times because it's it's the equivalent of a university type campus massive campus it's got its own transit so own bus system inside generally it's got a massive dining hall you've got washing facilities you've got every country generally has its own medical hub that has masseuses and physios and doctors and, and all that kind of stuff and then you obviously have your own accommodation you generally have a roommate so two beds to a room and they're just general apartments generally that are built um, a lot of people buy these apartments off the plan before the olympics and then once the athletes are gone that becomes their their apartment to live in but um it was fun it was um very very interesting the biggest thing i remember was getting to the village settled in and then you start walking around and you see the finest specimens in the world walking around basically wearing nothing and you know for a young fellow that's 19 20 a lot of good-looking women there. It was a matter of going to the dining hall and getting a, a drink and an ice cream or whatever I got after my meal and just sitting on a on an equivalent of a park bench somewhere and just 
just watching the world go by. I mean, you got athletes and basically basically wearing the bare minimum spandex and kind of what we see today with what people are wearing at gyms where you can nothing's really left to the imagination, put it that way. So that was that was interesting and and you've got the most in shape kind of active people in the world all in one spot. So I do remember that and that was definitely a fun part of it all. So moving on to the basketball, we funnily enough get no favors with the draw. We play Greece in Athens to open up an Olympic Games. So, for those of you who don't understand what that means, they are some of the most passionate, abusive, whatever you want to call it, fans in the world, and I love it. I love that atmosphere, but it was it was intense. So, we, we run out of the tunnel in Athens against Greece, opening night of the Basketball Olympics, and we're getting railed from the moment the first person in our, in our line as a team runs out. You know, where we're getting swore at, we're getting, you know, they're swearing and abusing so loudly, there's spit coming on us as we're running out of the tunnel. We're getting lots of malakas and, and all that kind of stuff. And and they were passionate. They were they're a passionate fan group. It was they were singing songs during the game. They were jeering us, whistling whenever we had the ball. There was, you know, I, th- I think there was a flare lit. Like it was the craziest thing I've ever seen. And I've come from college basketball, so so I've seen some crazy stuff with student sections and all that stuff. But this was this was a whole nother level of passion that they have for their sport over there. Generally, especially in Europe, a lot of people don't have a lot of money, so when they get an opportunity to go to a sporting event, sporting game. They're not going to sit there and just watch the show. They're going to be part of the show, and that's what you respected about it. And it was an intimidating atmosphere. It was it was very very loud, obnoxious, and and Greece end up. I believe they beat the shit out of us. Um, we didn't play particularly well. I think a little bit rattled by everything going on, and and, and they were a good team. They had a, a big fellow there that, that kicked my ass. It was my, my first foray into playing against a, a man strength type player. His last name was Papadopoulos. Just a big strong guy. wasn't athletic. Just knew how to seal. Knew how to use his body, and just kept. Just kept putting me under the basket and just shooting shooting little hooks over me and couldn't really do much with him. And we end up losing that game pretty convincingly. We go on then to play Angola. So basically, the way the Olympics work, for those that don't know, you've got two pools of six teams. Top four go through to the quarterfinals um, and you cross over. So one from whoever finishes first in one pool plays four in the other pool, two, two plays three and so on and so forth. So we end up then beating Angola. So we're okay. We're one on one. Our third game is against the U.S., so a tough task. We go in, we play pretty well. Um, we have a, a pretty good performance. The MO on the US was you zone them as much as possible whenever it becomes nut cutting time, meaning crucial possessions to close game in the third or the fourth quarter, you, you would go zone. And a lot of the countries had a lot of success. The, the game I spoke about earlier where Italy beat and they zoned them the whole game. The US were a talented team. They had uh, LeBron James, Alan Iverson, Carmelo Anthony, Tim Duncan, Amari Stoudemire, um, Stefan Marbury, Carlos Boozer. You know, there was, they were a tough team, but they didn't really have, they had a lot of good scorers, just bucket getters, but they didn't really have a, a feet set knockdown three that could, you know, the equivalent of, of, of a Kyle Corver, someone that you just knew you couldn't leave. And in international basketball, you need a few of those on the floor at times. And so we, we end up being pretty close to them. We're zoning them for most of the game. Third quarter, where we're up, I believe, at three quarter time, playing well. We're, we're right there in it, and and in the fourth quarter, I think it was Allen Iverson hit three threes in a row, and then Mallow hit one, and that's kind of what we're living and dying with. You know, if that was the shot that they were going to take, we we're like, we'd rather give you that than having having Amari or LeBron on the rim, Duncan. So that was kind of the gamble that we took. 
So we ended up losing that game, but I felt like individually I had a pretty decent game. I just felt like I held my own against a lot of the best players in the world, Tim Duncans and Carlos Boozers, and played decently enough and gave me a lot of confidence then with my sophomore year going back to, to college, which we'll talk about later on. But that was definitely a, a moment for me where I was like, I can compete against these guys night in, night out if I had the opportunity. I don't know. I know my body's not ready to do that yet, and that'll be another year or two away, but it was a, it was a real positive sign. So that then sets up a fourth game in the pool versus Puerto Rico. Must win for us. We were in a position where Greece was through, US was most likely going to get through, Lithuania was through. Those three were pretty much guaranteed. So it was out of us, Angola, Puerto Rico for that fourth spot. Angola hadn't won a game at that point. So we knew they were done and we had their head to head against them, even if they tied records with us. So Puerto Rico was the game. So if we, if we beat Puerto Rico, we're fourth. We go through to the, the crossovers and get a top eight finish. If we lose, we're basically out. Like no matter what happens in that fifth game against Lithuania, Puerto Rico game trumps it because they'll have the head to head versus us. So we go into that game. We're playing pretty well. We're up at every every quarter. I had to actually look up the numbers and the stats. We're up 78 to 74 with five minutes left in the fourth quarter. And then I have I have a bit of a, a blown fuse moment. So we're up four with five minutes left. We ran a lot of horns type action, which means one big on one elbow, the other big on the other elbow. And Shane Hill would come off either side and we'd make reads according to that. But generally, if he came off a, a pick and pop shooter like a Matt Nielsen, it, Matty would pop and then they'd, they'd play accordingly. So it, it felt like four or five straight possessions was going back to, to Matt Nielsen on a pop of some sort and he'd either shoot the jumper or, or drive the lane and we missed basically four or five straight shots. And I was a little frustrated because I, I felt like the ball wasn't moving. I felt Matty was possibly being selfish at times and taking some bad shots, but you know, probably overthought a little bit. But maybe they were good shots within our system back then. Who knows? But there was some. De- there was definitely a, a halt to our offense. I was having a, a decent game individually. I think a few other guys were playing pretty well, but the ball just stopped moving and it, and it became a kind of a grind in that fourth quarter, which it often does in a lot of games. But anyway, I felt like Maddie was 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 overdoing it. So come down, miss shot. Come down, miss shot. Come down. Drives the lane, miss shot, and we we're basically down with forty seconds left. We're down, we're down two or three. We come down for another crucial possession to tie the game or get within one. And I think Maddie shot a jumper and missed it. So I'm pissed at this point because I'm like, ball stop moving. We're playing a completely different style than we played in the first thirty five minutes. So we then have to foul them, intentionally foul them to put them on the free throw line. And I remember we're at the free throw line. I'm at one side, ready to box out my guy. Maddie's at the other side. First free throw is about to be shot, and. I look over to Maddie and I'm like, hey, Maddie, why don't you come down and shoot the next shot again? And he looked at me like, what are you talking about? He was kind of in shock that, that I even said that. And I was like, yeah, man, I'll, I'll inbound the ball. I'll just throw it straight to you. You just dribble up and shoot it again, you know, if you want to get some shots up. Because I felt like we were, we, weren't, we were being a little bit selfish and it was definitely the wrong thing to do and, and something that I shouldn't have done. But I remember it distinctly because I got, got in a lot of trouble after that for it and it wasn't the right thing to do. I don't condone kind of what I did, but. I did it, you know, I'm going to be mad about it. And um, Maddie and I got into it a little bit, but Maddie was kind of more shocked about it. Like this young fellow, what the hell is he doing? Even the Puerto Ricans that were lining up at the free throw were looking at me like this dude's, this dude's nuts. What the hell what the hell's going on? He's fighting with his own team. Um, so Jason Smith kind of grabbed me at the free throw line and was like, man, just chill out, Bo. He was like, stop, 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 you know? So they were, they were kind of in shock. So we get back to the locker room and I can't remember if Brian Gorgian, the head coach, gave his uh, post-game 
wrap up before or after, but it was dead quiet in there. We'd been knocked out of Olympic Games, essentially. We can't, we've got one game, le- one game left against Lithuania in the pool rounds, which meant nothing. That's the worst position to be in when you're in Olympic Games or World Championships, playing for your country and you're playing in a game that doesn't mean anything. Now, people will say any, any game for your country means something. I would agree to an extent, but you always want to be playing playing with a chance to further yourself in a tournament or, or a game or a final series or whatever it is. And, and we, we lost that opportunity. So we're out very quiet in the locker room. And um, I think it was Jason Smith and Tony Ronaldson, I think, were the two guys that basically said, hey, Bogut, that was, that was some bullshit. Can't do that, man. Like, we, we don't do that. It's not 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 part of our culture, and and they were right, one hundred percent. And I was fuming at this point. I took I took losses very very hard as a young fella, worse than later on in my career. I mean, I I ended up figuring out how to kind of tone it down after a tough loss, where I'd be pissed after the game, but then the next morning it's like <sighs> take a deep breath, all right, move on to the next thing. Whereas a, as a young fella, I'd let things fester and hold on to them for for weeks, if not months, sometimes. And so I'd be in my own head a lot. So I'm pissed after this game, still thinking that. You know, we lost because of selfishness, but I didn't say anything in the locker room, just kept my mouth shut, took my medicine from the veterans, got a, got a little bit of abuse from them and, and warranted for sure. So, we end up going back to the village and it's kind of a bit of bit of hostility in the air between myself and, and the rest of the group just based on, on what I did and my actions, which, which weren't right. So, the next day we have a day off and then the second day after that we're playing Lithuania in a game essentially it didn't matter. So on that next day we didn't practice. So I'm like, okay, my parents were in the uh, in Athens at the time and my college coach, Ray Jacoletti, was was in Athens at the time. So I decided I'm just going to get out of the village, just get out of here, which you could do. Get out, go to Athens and just hang out with the family. My auntie from Croatia was also in town. So I do this but not the right way. I end up not telling anyone kind of where I went which definitely wasn't right. So if you left the village, you're just supposed to tell your team manager or someone that you're leaving. We're obviously in a in a foreign country, so they need to know where you are at all times in case something happens, right? So I don't do that. I just basically start wake up in the morning, pack a little 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 bag, bum bag type thing with a few supplies, wallet, phone keys, passes, ID badges, and I just get out of there. I start walking towards out of our out of our residences. I walk towards where the bus stop is, the in transit bus that would then put me get on that bus that takes me to outside of the village, get in the cab, go to Athens, down, downtown in the city of Athens, right? As I'm walking up, I'm on one side of the road on the footpath and I see Brian Gorgian on the other side. I guess he's coming from dining hall. I had headphones on, but I saw him kind of waving me over and I gave him nothing really. I kind of ignored it stupidly and, and just kept walking. And I was still so pissed off about being knocked out of the Olympics and, and the Olympic Games and all that stuff and the way it all went down. And so I kind of ignored him and just went and got on the bus and left the village. Turned my phone off, didn't tell anyone where I was. And so I'm gone at like 9, 10 a.m. and I'm with my family and and the whole day, you know, kind of taking my mind off it. And I guess by like three, four, five o'clock, they're calling, they're calling me. I'm not answering my phone. They're calling other people within within the team. Um, we had a few people that were staying outside the village. Have you seen Andrew? Have you seen Andrew? And so I finally get back to the village. It's dark. It's seven, eight, nine o'clock at night. Most of the guys are out and about. I don't see many people in the apartment or the dorm rooms, as you'd call them. And um, this would be where a crisis meetings start about kind of my actions and the consequences. So I get a knock on the door to my room, and Ken Shields comes in, sits on one bed. I'm on the other bed, and um, 
you know, we start talking and he's kind of getting, trying to talk me off the ledge a little bit, but also giving me a serve, like what you did was bullshit. So rightfully so, but I'm still in that mode of, you know, I don't want to hear this shit. I'm still pissed off about the loss. No one has addressed the actions that led to me going crazy. I kind of had that mentality, which was wrong, probably over-exaggerated what happened late in that game, but I still feel like we went a little bit selfish. And um, so I was still kind of, you know, fired up about all that and, um it gets to a point where, you know, it's, we, we got to figure out, do you want to be part of this? Do you, you know, are you remorseful about your actions? And I was I was kind of like, you know, I wasn't showing too much remorse. I was I was that young, arrogant kid that was, fuck you, do whatever you want to, whatever you want to do, you know. I didn't swear at him or say anything like that to him, but it was that mentality of like, I basically just said, whatever you guys want to do, you're going to do. Like my, what, what, what I do right now is going to have no bearing on that which was stupid, but if you're going to bench me, suspend me, send me home, do whatever you want to do. I really don't care at this point. We're out of the Olympics. We've got no chance of winning anything worthwhile. What, we're going to compete for ninth and 10th? Great, fantastic. You know, I really don't care if I miss those games. And, and that wasn't the right attitude looking back, you know. Um, but a mistake I made and, and one I had to live with. So I guess Ken leaves that meeting and I don't hear anything till you know, the next morning essentially. So I find out what time kind of the, the, the vans or the buses are going to um, to shoot around um, before our game against Lithuania and I, I don't really hear much else. And I've got mixed reports about what exactly happened in those meetings with the leadership group. One is we'll talk to, to John really a little bit later who was a NBL player, played on the Olympic team, NBL legend. He was my roommate, so he he was in the leadership group, so he can add some context to that. But I'd also heard, I've spoken to a few assistant coaches, and I've heard there was some people that were in the camp of putting me on a plane the next morning and sending me the hell home to Australia, or actually it was Utah. I would be going back to Utah, get me the hell out of there. There were some that saying I should sit out again. There were some that say said, look, he's young and stupid. He's 19. He handled it poorly, but he's 19. You know, let's let's pump the brakes a little bit. But I guess the you know the end of the end of the day, it's from the lens of whoever's telling the story. So I don't know to this day the exact truth. I've got I've got numerous different um, versions of that story, but I, I do know that Basketball Australia was involved at that point, had received news that, um, you know, we want to send Andrew Bogart home and not have him playing the next two games of the Olympics. Basketball Australia pushed back on that and said, look, it's not the right decision. Worst case, just sit him on the bench, don't play him. I'm going to go on record right now and say if I was sent home on that plane – the next day after that Puerto Rico game, it would have been my first and last Olympic Games. I, I doubt I would have played for the national team ever again. And and look, that wouldn't have been the right thing to do. But knowing how fiery I was, especially in my youth, knowing the journey that if you've listened to, to the My Journey series from day dot, you'll know where I stood on myself and my journey within Basketball Australia and Basketball Victoria it was not a positive journey for me. And I was looking, almost looking for a reason to just bounce out of there. And if I would have been kind of shamed publicly, and that would have hurt my draft stock and my college stock, I, I would never, I never would have played for them, for my country again. Which would have been a very sad day. But I'll, I'll put that on record today. Like it was that close. And and is that the right mindset looking back? No. But I was a young, stupid kid that made a mistake. I needed to deal with some consequences. And I think. Um, it all ended up working out okay. You know, it was water under the bridge. I ended up playing the next game against Lithuania as per normal. Didn't play a lot against New Zealand um, in the 9-10 game. You know, it was kind of like, this is your medicine, cheer the team on. Cool. It wasn't really spoken about beyond that. Um, but now that I've done some digging, what, what are we, 16 years, 17 years down the track, I've heard mixed reports. So basically, there have been two points in my career uh, where I could have ended up 
in Europe with a European passport playing for, for a team over there. One was if I didn't make the AIS in 2002, if I didn't have that opportunity, uh, I would have went over there and trained with Tabona um, in Zagreb in the academy there and God knows what could have happened from there with my national team career. And this was the second point where I was like looking back, knowing how hot-headed I was and how much loyalty meant to me, uh, uh, that could have been a real big turning point. So just a small little detail that not no one really knows. Um, I mean, there's there's people that know the story about what went on with the Puerto Rico game and and how I handled it and the back and forth, but no one knows kind of those those details that I've come to find out these these last couple of months researching this. So I hope you you know realize that um, I'm I'm presenting this from a point of view where I was wrong. I definitely handled the situation in a in a way that is just not good for team culture and team harmony and, and all that kind of stuff. And the excuse I would give if there is one is I had no idea what team culture or team harmony meant at that age at all. I had no idea how important it was to set standards and and, and have consequences to your actions. And um, I guess that was a, a big turning point for me knowing that you know, I'm eventually going to be the face of this national team and one of the main players. I need to conduct myself much more professionally than I have. And there was no one really that mentored me to do that. Um, Jason Smith, John Rooley, those guys helped to an extent. But within a national team program, I'm only with them for one, two, three months, maybe max. And then you go back to Utah where I'm looked upon as the leader of of, of my college team with guys younger than me. So it's kind of one of those things about not really having the tools or being handed the tools to better equip yourself to handle those situations. And I don't you know, want people to feel sorry for me. I made the mistake and that's why it's on this podcast and I'm airing it. I have no issue you know, airing dirty laundry about my mess ups in my life and my career and that's a part of this journey. If, if this was a, a podcast where everything was rosy and um, everything was done perfectly, you know, it wouldn't be what it is. So, hope you enjoyed that story. So now it's time for shenanigans again. So this is this is a fun part of of all these boomers trips. I mean, we're, we're at the end of the day, we're all Australian on that national team and um, having a good time, having some some drinks, some alcohol, and and making a fool of ourselves is probably the next best thing we do as Australians at times. And this Olympics was was none different. We I remember we get back to the residences. There was a table, a makeshift table that we made in the lounge room, filled with bottles of, of all kinds of whatever you wanted, beers, spirits, wine. So guys are drinking whatever they wanted. And um, the other funny thing in an Olympic village is there's a there's a McDonald's in the Olympic every Olympic village I've been in. There's a McDonald's in there. It's free, obviously. Um, what's crazy about it is a lot of countries that are from poorer cities uh, poorer countries in general i mean there might be athletes individual athletes that are from a small village in a poor country that never seen a mcdonald's never tried a mcdonald's some of these countries would just eat a mcdonald's daily it was absolutely unbelievable right they just they just be smashing mcdonald's and and we kind of had a rule where we we try to try to stay away from it for the most part and once we were kind of essentially knocked out of, of a tournament of an Olympic Games, we then we then feast on McDonald's as well. So I remember getting back to the residences all alcohol, and then there was just Macca's wrappers everywhere, just just guys vegging out, which which athletes do. I'm not going to lie, we we definitely have our cheat few days, especially after a winning or losing a championship or the end of the season. You definitely have that that kind of few days or a week where you just um, do all the things you can't do in season. So that was funny. I remember a lot of partying, a lot of different things going on. There's not too much partying in the village um, because there's still sports that are – there's some sports that don't finish up till the day of the closing ceremony. So you got to be kind of somewhat respectful, but there is – you know, we always had an issue with 
at least when I was involved in Olympic Games, was the swimmers. They would be done within the first five days, right? So there was one Olympic Games where we were in the same building as the swimmers and they had all, the, all these signs up about, please be quiet, our swimmers need to wake up early, their events are blah, blah, blah. So we, we try to be respectful and, and keep it down. And if for some reason someone was making noise, someone would come out and get on them a little bit and be like, hey, you know, blah, 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 you need to, you need to keep it down. The swimmers, please be respectful. So we were respectful for the most part. What killed me about the swimmers was that they were our elite medal chances generally every Olympics. So they had a bit of a swagger and an arrogance about them. Um, not all of them, but some of them definitely did. So they, they, their events would be over within four or five days, right? First four or five days of Olympics, swimming's done, but they'd stay on obviously till, till the team flight goes home after the closing ceremony. Now, basketball's every other day and it starts on the day of the Olympics, first day and it and basically you're playing right up to the end. So these swimmers would be respectful of them and then five or six days into this thing, once they're done, what do you think they're doing? That respect goes out the window because they're partying, they're drunk, they're doing doors banging and, and, and it goes the complete other way. So I just remember that. But um, yeah, I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of partying on the village because of that. One night we get back at, I think it was, it would have been, the sun was just coming up. So we get back one night and I'm with Paul Rogers, Roggy, and he was an awesome guy to be around, hilarious life of the party type guy, fun. He was a star of the Perth Wildcats at the time. I remember we get back and I think someone in a different building from from the Australian team, I don't know if it was a – might have been swimmers, might have been rowers, whoever it was, had a DJ booth they brought with them. So they were – obviously, that was one of their passions or whatever it was away from their sport. They had, had a DJ kind of deck and, and whatever and um, Roger found out about this and we went over there and I remember standing next to him and he basically opens up the, 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 the balcony windows um, puts on the headphones, kind of drags the decks out to the balcony and just the speaker and just starts starts playing like he's a DJ to a crowd off a balcony like you'd see at a, at a, at a festival <laughs> at like six in the morning or five in the morning. So there's some athletes that are awake going to get their breakfast. There's some athletes that now are waking up and like what the hell's going on. It lasted for about five, ten minutes and the song, I still remember the song was God is a DJ which is a, a house electro techno type song and, and he's just Headphones on, eyes closed, just bopping away like he's spinning the decks and you're just like, man, what are you doing? Hilarious story though because like I said, the dude, he, he really thought he was DJ whoever at some big beach you know, festival that was um, DJing a crowd of 15,000 people and it was just him off a balcony. So, that was one funny story. Now, one, one cracking story I'll leave you with and I don't think this story has source on it. I wasn't there so I'm, I'm getting it firsthand from – from a few teammates. If you guys go out to to a, a nightclub out in Athens somewhere and there were a few of the Opals players there as well, the, the, the female uh, women's basketball team, I think they'd probably medaled. I mean, they, they're a very, very good program and have had a whole lot more success than we have had. Um, but we were pretty close with them. Obviously, basketball, basketball, get, on, get along well. So we all go out. I don't go – I think I went and then left early to go somewhere else. A few of the guys remained and there was a bit of a scuffle in the nightclub. I believe it was, funnily enough, Shane Heal, maybe Matt Nielsen and a few other guys were there and maybe Jason Smith and they, they get in a little little tussle inside. It gets taken outside. Basically, they get thrown out. The other party gets thrown out. And the way the Greeks back in the day used to do things, they probably still do in Europe. If there's a scuffle inside the bar, they'll basically remove both of you and take you outside and be like, go for your life. Go for it. You want to fight? Let's see it. And- <laughs> They'd let people fight um, outside of the club. Don't do this shit inside around other people. You want to be heroes, and there's an argument to be said. Maybe, maybe that's the right way to go about things at times. If people want to want to be disruptive and, and silly, but anyway, they get in a little scuffle. It goes outside, and there's there's a few punches thrown outside, and I believe someone goes in a whack 
one of the guys might have been Shane or someone from the side. And there's an Opals player there with them. Susie Bakovic, absolute legend. I've, I love her this day. I've, I've, I've been friends with her for a number of years. She played in the WNBL, the WNBA, long-time Opal, just a legend of the game. Anyone that follows Australian women's basketball will know who she is. And I guess she saw someone coming in to, to do something from, from behind the back of another guy and basically gave him one or pushed him out of the way or just was like, hey, you know, what are you doing? So then someone's come in and gave her one and basically punched her in the nose, in the face. And I believe cracked her nose, broke her nose. Now, I believe as an athlete, her nose has probably been broken a lot, much like mine. So, it doesn't take a lot for us to, to break our nose. But nonetheless, her nose broke and, and story goes and rumor swirls that uh, she went up to the, the curb of, of the a gutter basically and, um, you know, bent down and smacked that thing back in place and, and was ready to get back on with it. <laughs> so... An absolute phenomenal story for Susie Bakovic. Um, like I said, if you're a fan of hers, I know who she is. It kind of goes with her emotions. She's a no-nonsense type type lady. She's um, what you see is what you get. There's no bullshit about her and, and that's how she goes about it. And that's my kind of person. So, I, I loved her. But that, that story, I still remember this stage. I remember seeing her at the village and I believe she had a black eye. I think Shane Hill had a had a bit of a, a shine on him as well. But that was... Um, a little bit of shenanigans that went on later on in that in that campaign. All right, so we have a special guest to join us for this episode specifically. He was my roomie, my roommate in the Olympic Village in Athens. John Rilly, welcome to the show. Bergs, always good to catch up with you and loving your work in the podcast world. Thank you. It's been a while. Um, we'll go through John's history real quick. He was a, a former player in the NBL. A lot of people, a lot of NBL fans will know exactly who he was, a prolific scorer in the NBL. When I was a young fella, you know, 12, 13, I'd, I'd be watching games and John was always fun to watch, talking shit, going back and forth, making tough shots and, and a real gamesman. So in the 90s, uh, mid-90s with the Brisbane Bullets for a season, then went to Adelaide, late 90s, West Sydney Razorbacks for five years in the early 2000s and then went over to the Townsville Crocs where there were some great battles there that I used to watch as a young fella and, and finished it off in the NBL with the New Zealand Breakers. He's now a, a coach, at uh, assistant coach at the UC Santa Barbara over in the States and, and was at, at Boise State for six years before that. So an, an NBL champion in 98, all-NBL first teamer, scoring champion in 03 and rookie of the year in 95. So a pretty good resume and played overseas a few seasons, I believe, John. Uh, if, if a few seasons equates to four or five months, yes, a few seasons. Yeah, got all your pay on time, I bet. Uh, exactly. That's why I returned to uh, West Sydney because I was getting paid on time. <laughs> that's how it goes with Europe. That's why I try <laughs> to tell these young fellas, whatever's on paper, take away about half of it and that's what you're guaranteed to get. I would, I would have been happy with half. <laughs> <laughs> tomorrow. Your pay's coming tomorrow. That's what the Europeans are known yes, for. Yes, yes. Yeah, every time you go ask for your pay, it's tomorrow. Still waiting. Well, you made the Athens team in 2004, a long time ago, a lot of good memories. You obviously made the, the team. Did you did you expect to make that team going into that camp? I think it was about a 20, 25-man camp, if I remember correctly. The first first one was at the AIS. Did you think you had a chance for that, that squad? I, I, I think when you get to that stage, you always feel like you got a chance. I was fortunate enough to be part of Brian Gorgian's original team when he took over the squad. And when we went away... Uh, we had success. I played well. Um, so, I was quietly confident because when you get to that level and that stage, you can't take anything for granted. And, um, you know, I, I was always 
nervous until I got the call to say I was part of the team. Um, but I was playing good at that stage in my career, you know, so I was quietly confident. But because I'd been a part of some of the, uh, like the 2000 process uh, and just my own career, it was until I got the phone call, I was never going to be 100% comfortable. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was a pretty big squad, a lot of kind of veteran players that had been in numerous campaigns with Tony Ronaldson and Shane Heal and whatnot. So it definitely was a, a competitive squad. Seeing that this is a somewhat, you know, slighted podcast towards myself and my journey, was this the first time that you kind of saw me? Um, had you heard about me before? What was your first impressions? All that fun stuff. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, thank, thanks to your due diligence, I could think about this a little bit. When I first met you, was it ac- actually at a- Alexandria uh, in Sydney? Uh, you were with the uh, national junior team, and it was the NBL off season, and quite a number of us would play there in the in the off season. Uh, so we were fortunate enough to play like yourself and Brad Newley as you guys prepared for the World Championships. Obviously, great memories for you, but that's actually when I first got in contact with you and kind of just monitored your success and progress from that day forward. Wasn't that when we beat you guys? I cannot remember the score, but there's no way that you guys beat us. Oh, no. No, it was. It was. You were the national team squad, right? No, no, we're, we're we're like the 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 red fern ruffies, you know. Oh, you were the come on now. To- you had you had Shane Hill, you had Maddie Nielsen. I just remember because we, we we came up with our junior team. It was a kind of a half national team camp that Gorge put together, and we played you guys in a two game a Saturday Sunday. And I remember we beat you guys on the Saturday. Gorge was fuming, losing his shit, and then Sunday you guys beat the absolute crap out of us. And I still remember because Matt Nielsen took out a few of my front front teeth, and I had a um. <laughs> <laughs> no shit, I had a my, the bottom of my lip was on the outside was black, so I had like this chin strap on my um. Uh, Look like I finally had facial hair, but I, I definitely remember that weekend. Yeah, now now that you've refreshed my memory, maybe that first scrimmage was a little closer than I'll, I'll I remember. But yeah, like that that was my first interaction with you, uh, th- and my first memory uh, was uh, y- your aggressiveness, your confidence in who you were and your abilities. Although when we're all young, you might get a little ahead of yourself. If, but if you don't have that ingredient, it's hard to be successful. Yeah, I agree. It was it was a fun time. It was just great to compete against grown men. That was kind of my first foray into into you know going against those kind of guys, um, which we later ended up being in, in the Athens camp a year later. But um, do you remember those Gorgian camps, how, how hard they were? I mean, um, I, I remember, man, like that was my kind of first time in, in, in men's basketball, but um, leading up to Athens, it was tour days that were actual tour days. You know, nowadays, tour days are, I don't know what it's like in college, but one's a contact session, one's a little bit lighter, more shooting and kind of X's and O's, whereas that was that was two sessions of two and a half, three hours of, of going at it. Yeah, look, um, for, for me, I just looked at it as a great opportunity to be playing on that stage and making the most of my opportunity because – uh, and I'm sure Gorge was the same way because 2002 Australia didn't qualify for the world championships because we lost to New Zealand. Phil Smythe was the head coach of the national team at that stage. And I was absolutely no chance of the national team, uh, while Phil Smythe was the head coach there. So, um, I was happy to kind of get a, another opportunity to play at that level when I was kind of probably in the peak of my career. Um, so we, we could have practiced 12 hours a day and I was going to make the most of it, but the, 
yes, you're 100% correct with trying to do it these days. It would be really hard to do. But, I, I, you know, Gorge was motivated himself in the fact that he, did, you know, I remember him saying, well, we can't be the team that loses as well, you know. So, he, he was a motivated coach at that stage as well. Yeah, and you had to be in shape. You had to be – I remember some guys would just end up dropping off towards the end of that camp. You know, they just couldn't couldn't survive it. There'd be in, it's, yeah, there'd be injuries. I mean, it was physical. It was brutal. But more as a young fellow, you remember it because you're like, holy shit, like going from the junior level and, and, and a freshman year of college, which was intense, this was a kind of a whole other level, you know, and I was with Rick Majerus. So, gorgeous, gorgeous sessions. They made made sure that we were one of the best in shape teams. We wore the heart rate monitors back when it, it wasn't cool. We did all that stuff and – I just remember for you, I mean, your, your fitness was never an issue. So, ne- neither was mine as a young fella, but as a big, it's a little bit different. You're, you're that one out on the perimeter, kind of no contact, just pinging threes. We have to wrestle down there. Yeah, and, and look, that's that's my whole career, I was just trying to be in the best physical shape I could be in. One, just because of my physical body, I uh, wasn't the most uh, physical guy in the world. Um, but then as the camp went on, I felt like I could get better as the camp went on because I knew I was taking care of myself um, 12 months of the year. So, I, I actually did look at it as a marathon and the longer we went, the better chance I had of showing uh, that I was in the condition that you needed to be in to to keep Gorge happy. Yeah, interesting time. So, then we, we then flow on to, to go into that New Zealand series. I think it was a three-game series over in New Zealand. It, it didn't mean anything as far as qualifying. We, we both qualified because, of course, New Zealand finished fourth in the World Championships in 02. So, it was more of a tune-up for both of us. But that was my first stint of international basketball at a organized level with referees and crowds and whatnot. And um, I'm not sure if you remember the series, but I just remember how physical it was. I didn't realize the rivalry with New Zealand at the time because we didn't really have it in juniors. They kind of sucked in juniors. We beat them, beat them by 40 yeah. or 50. And New Zealand came off a, an unbelievable few years in the early 2000s, whereas you said they, they beat the Boomers and qualified in 02 and we didn't go. And that was kind of a a dark patch in Australian national team history. But do you just remember how, how physical and how crazy that series was? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Because it was an era where New Zealand basketball was gaining legs and the guys on their team, kind of like the Australian team before that, a lot of those guys had come through the junior ranks together. So, they had a lot of pride, just not for their country, but for them as a basketball team and carrying the flag for the sport in their country. So, uh, by the time that series had rolled around, that was, I'm sure they looked at it as 1-1 because they'd beaten Phil Smythe, Gorge's group had beaten them uh, one other time and then we go pre-Olympics with that series. So, I'm sure they felt like, hey, let, let's go into the Olympics with some good momentum and then as you find out, once you get to that level, anytime Australia New Zealand plays each other, uh, it, it really doesn't matter where each country sits in the scope of things. It's going to be on. Yeah, even if you're playing marbles, right? I mean, it's it's one of those rivalries that, I mean, you probably equate it to the, the, the US and Russia back in the in the 70s and 80s and 90s. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, I, I just remember asking the ref a few times in that series, are we playing rugby or basketball? Like, what's <laughs> what are you refereeing? Because it was, I mean, Perro was a unit. Perro Cameron was, you know, what, 6'6 six, six at the best best of times and just a big nugget of a guy that would just set massive screens and could shoot the ball. And I just remember like, you know, I was only 230 pounds then, 100 kilos, barely 105 kilos. And I just remember coming out of those games like these guys are nuts. Yeah. And, and Perro was really the barometer for their physical 
play and then you know the advantage of them playing on their own soil they got officiated very user friendly like during that series so um you know for them they needed to have that about their game because you know from from top to bottom they probably weren't as good a basketball players but if they could wear us down uh or get us a little frustrated with the whole situation then it becomes uh you know more of an even ball game for them yeah, they had to junk it up and be physical and, and that kind of leads me into, do you remember the first game and, and Dylan Boucher and, and what he did to me? I, yeah, look, uh, all, all, all through my national team uh, career when you played New Zealand, uh, that, that was something that they obviously wanted to do was uh, attach himself to the rookie, try and intimidate him and obviously yourself uh, being a, a vocal point of where we were going with the national team, they felt if they could get under your skin uh, through that, you know, it, it, but I, I look, as I got to know you, I think more times than not, it actually motivates you and actually rises your awareness to the what the occasion really is. I 100% agree, but it just would have been nice if you could have told me that pregame because I didn't know what the hell was going on because <laughs> – I just remember that. I just remember that Hucker ending, and I was like nose to nose with him, and I'm like, "Fuck you! I'm not moving." And then he wasn't moving, and then I just remember the whole crowd standing up and cheering, and it was like, "Holy crap!" Yeah. You know? Oh man! But how juiced are you, and how how ready are you going? Uh, you it just gets you ready now. Like it, obviously, it's a great thing uh, that New Zealand has going with the Hucker, but like just the energy it brings to the arena is unbelievable. Oh no doubt, it was a, it was a great experience, and. Um, yeah, I still remember it to this day. Like it was, it was, it was awesome. But end of that New Zealand series, do you remember <laughs> the ongoings? In, in, <laughs> yep, yep, yep. The ongoings. I spoke about it briefly uh, before having you on. But we're in Dunedin, right? Dunedin, however you pronounce it. Uh, no, I believe we were actually in Invercargill, the most southern tip of New Zealand, before you hit the Antarctic. Oh, there you go. I had it wrong, so I might need to adjust that. But yeah, I remember we just it was there was one pub in town, and it was kind of it was the end of the series. I had that right, yeah. Yes, correct. Yeah, it was the end of the series, and it was um I guess everyone that was involved in the game, players from both teams, coaches. There was even the people that were you know producing the games, the you know the the music people, the arena people. They were all at this one pub because it was the only place in town. And I just remember, I mean, I didn't have much drinks that night. I don't think you 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 know you weren't a drinker by nature. You'd be on the orange juices for most of the night. But um, yeah, I just remember the, somehow the, there was a game between the New Zealand team and us of who could throw the most darts at each other shirtless. And I just remember being a young fellow like these, th- this is crazy. And it goes with that boomers culture of there was so much crazy stuff that happened on tours. But I just remember like walking out of that place and going back to the room and the last, I don't know who it was that was up there, but they had a dart hanging out of their chest. <laughs> Do you remember that? Yeah, look, I, I I do remember that moment because just like you, uh, you know, it was a social it was a social gathering for everyone kind of really involved in that game, players, uh, New Zealand basketball, basketball Australia, people, you know, people that were involved in that series. It was just kind of uh, an opportunity to you know reminisce about the games and talk about the Olympics and move forward. And as you said, at some stage of the night, uh, you look over and. There are Aussies and Kiwis trying to figure out who's still the toughest guy and they got their shirts off and they're throwing darts at each other in the chest, stomach area. And as as you said, there, there was one bloke that still had a dart stuck in his gut as we were leaving. Yeah, it was it was fun times <laughs> as a 19, 20-year-old thinking this is the, my first first digs in a national <laughs> team campaign. And I'm like, oh, I'm good. I'm not, I'm not taking a dart in the chest. And I'm like, I hope, hope no one has any 
underlying health conditions because <laughs> it was a good way to pass it around. Did you ever think of taking that back to Salt Lake City with yourself? Definitely not. That was not one. Um, I was more of the <laughs> pranking guys and doing that kind of stuff. But yeah, that one, I was I was even shook by that one. And I've done some crazy shit in my lifetime. And that was just like, wow, these guys are- And this was like veteran yes. guys on the team that were, mm-hmm. that were just going absolutely crazy. But um, another one I spoke about- that I uh, I might fl- I might flag with you. I didn't have it on the run sheet for us, so I was shocked. Do you remember we we have have our last Gold Coast camp before we take off to to home for three or four days, and then go off to to Italy for the pre tour? And I remember we were at um, I don't know I think it was the casino on the Gold Coast. We'd gone on that little boat trip, had some drinks and a barbecue, and then um, we'd gone back to to the casino, and the bar was pumping. We couldn't get a drink, and Catalini, who was the life of a party, I loved him. I thought he was awesome on that tour as a young fellow because I used to watch him as a kid and then and then being around him and he decided to jump over the bar and, and pour himself a jug of beer. Were you there that night? I was not, but that does not surprise me with Cat. I was lucky enough to be a teammate of his for three years in Adelaide, so he, he knew how to enjoy himself, that's for sure. Yeah, I just remember it because we, we all got booted out by a big marriage <laughs> fella and we kind of <laughs> got all that to leave with, with Kat. We didn't, didn't want him by himself. But um, we end up then going home. We pack. We, we go on to a, the tour of Italy. So my first kind of tour of the national team and we get told by – so we've, we've, we're both confirmed that we're in the national team and we get told a uh, – Great to make the team. Congratulations. Put some sort of act or song or something together for your rookie night. And I'm thinking, what do you mean rookie night? I thought I thought they were taking the piss out of me. And they're like, yeah, you need to do something. It's boomer's tradition. And we get told that we have to do something. And I remember being more nervous about that than the Olympic Games. Um, and I, I think you that was your first actual meaningful campaign where you had to do the rookie night with us too, right? Do you remember that? Yes, ab- absolutely. Uh, you know, once once you got to play in either a world champion or Olympics, uh, the rookies, uh, irrespective of age, uh, you had to, uh, you know, do a, do a skit or, you know, bring something to the team to kind of show a different side of you. Uh, and and I've, I remember that poolside, uh, I, I pulled out a uh, I was hoping to do a, a comical poet, poem. Uh, I, I put put a few um, bars together, sonnets, whatever those things are called. And Paul Rogers uh, was not a fan of what I'd written. So, him and I actually put a little time and effort into it and uh, wrote a poem that really uh, highlighted uh, everyone associated with the program, one of their attributes um, you know, whether it was Gorge's crooked finger or, you know, Choco always coming from, you know, an underprivileged area or something like that. Yeah, and that's what Dave Anderson and myself did with with the working class man, Jimmy Barnes song. Probably shouldn't have chose to sing because I'm a horrible singer, but um, yeah, we rewrote the lyrics and, and took the piss out of everyone in the room essentially. But what an amazing backdrop for a rookie night. I, I still remember that was kind of my first foray into something nice, being with the national team and a little cliff top down in the southern part of Italy, Mediterranean kind of right below us and good times. No, look, that resort we stayed at was, uh, yeah, one, one of the best I've been around in all my life and I've been lucky enough to stay at some nice places, but that was a great backdrop, great night. And as as you said, like, uh, it was a nervous occasion because you wanted to do a good job, but it was really taking you out of your own comfort zone. Yeah, and I'm, I, I mentioned that CJ's was probably the worst. <laughs> 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 yeah, I got to get him on one day to talk about that. He, he basically read it that you know when you forget where you parked your car joke that uh, if he was in some movie, 
And everyone was like, man, yeah. did you just read that off a script? <laughs> but he got away with it. He got away with it. So anyhow, we move on from there. We, we, we played pretty well in that tournament. I think we finished second in that tournament, lost to Italy in the final, I believe. Was that right? Yep. Yep. Uh, if the, I'm thinking of the same one, we played Brazil the first game. Yep. Yep. And then we, yeah, we ended up ended up playing okay. And, and Italy went on to then beat the US in that um, in a, in a lead up friendly as well going into the Olympics. So whenever whenever someone beat the US, that was big news. So we got a hold of that. Yes, we, we got a hold of that. You're tape. correct. Yeah, yeah. Which which actually Shit, great memory. Yeah, which actually got us put us in a position to, to almost beat them, which we'll talk about later. But we then move on. We get to the Olympic Village. Um, we settle in. Get all our you know. You just remember getting all your gear, getting all your fittings, your shoes, your opening ceremony stuff, and. I guess, what were your first impressions of, of kind of settling into an Olympic village, your first and last Olympics? Yeah. So, like once you hit the village, uh, for me, your head's on a swivel because you're around the world's best athletes in every sport. Um, so, I'd never been in an environment like that. Uh, but then once you check in and you see some of the other world-class athletes there, um, it was time to go and get your, your gear and all of that kind of stuff. And then what I remember walking through that warehouse, getting, you know, all the different, uh, pieces of clothing and items and everything has, you know, something with Australia on it or the emblem and all of that kind of stuff. And that, that just is when for me, it really started to sink in that, you know, being part of the Olympics is really something special. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I remember just getting so much gear that you didn't even know what you're going to do with half of it. And I still had, I think I still have some of that to this day, but I remember getting to the village and just, just seeing kind of all the different, um, athletes and just, just peak bodies that were just in the best physical shape. And a lot of people wearing not much. Um, you know, you, you talk about active wear today. I mean, the Olympic village was, was active wear, probably, probably the, the initial place where active wear started. But, um, man, it was, it was just crazy being around, you know, world class tennis players and soccer players and basketball players. Yeah, you know, and I don't, I don't want to hopefully spoil too much of what we're going to talk about. But, um, you know, when you're in the village, uh, you know, there's track and field, there's weightlifting rooms. Like, uh, you don't have to leave the village to get a good workout in. And, um, you know, like e every day I would go and work out myself to stay in some type of game shape. Um, but then I would just sit at the track and watch. Uh, Addo Bolden, Marie Screen, these guys warm up and what they go through in their preparation because it's just great to watch, uh, people of, of that, uh, ilk and see how they become successful. And if you can take anything away from them, watching boxers try and make weight. So they're on the treadmill in the alfoil outfits, just trying yeah. to drip sweat so they can make their weight. Like, um, it, it really was an unbelievable mix of athletes and just seeing, how everyone gets to their peak performance in different ways. One thing I remember, do you remember Michael Phelps was there, yeah? I do not remember that at all. I think he, I believe he was there and I believe he's, uh, could, I could be wrong, it might be the next Olympics, but I remember his diet was crazy because all he would eat was chicken nuggets from McDonald's. <laughs> Yep. And then he would just go out yep. and win, win every gold medal. You talk about Maccas. I can tell you that Addo Bolden and Maurice Green, on the day that they were running for the gold medal, they were eating Big Mac meals. Yeah, it's it's. I couldn't believe it because I was. You're probably in the same boat as me. But even if I ate McDonald's on a game day and it did nothing to me, it would just mentally drain me because <laughs> I'd just be like, I've I've, right. I've done wrong. I should yeah. have done this, and then it just it just plays some mental mind games with me going into a game. 
Yeah, it, it but like um and and for your listeners out there like there there's a Macca's in the dining hall that you you have access to pretty much 24/7. So uh if if you couldn't have some self-restraint, you could do some damage in the Olympic Village. Yeah, and most of the times for us it was the rule was that once we're kind of done um, and most athletes, you're knocked out of your event or your tournament, then you go crazy on Maccas for a couple of days. But I just couldn't believe, yeah, like you said, that there were some athletes that were just, it was part of the daily regime. And, and look, the food in the dining hall outside of Maccas wasn't the greatest at times, but yeah, you could definitely get caught up in it. But that's just something you got you to battle with. We, we move yeah. on, we move on to our opening game. So it was against Greece, in Greece, in Athens, Greece. They do us some, some good favors with the scheduling there. I just remember that, that game. I mean, what are your, what are your first memories of that game? Yes. Uh, so, I'd played in Greece a couple of years before that. A couple of those guys on their team were teammates. So, uh, you know, I'm sure for the Aussies in 2000, when you're the host, there's a lot of expectation. Um, but then on our side, it, it was a great way to get into the Olympics. If you come away with a win, I think that, you know, lays a great foundation for us moving forward with our own aspirations. Um, but if, if anyone's been to a sporting event in Greece, the atmosphere, uh, you know, just, just not the fans being fans, but the sideshows that go along with it, uh, you know, like, uh, <laughs> like the, the atmosphere, as, as you said in your notes to me, like, uh, it's, it's always going to be hard to beat that atmosphere. And the arena was probably only about 12 and a half thousand people, I believe. But, um, uh, you know, them just getting introduced, I remember the stadium, uh, you know, it, it, was, it wasn't the same, but it had the same buzz as, as walking into the Olympic Stadium on opening ceremony night. Yeah, man, I was, I was, I'd played, I came back from college freshman year and played in, you know, the BYU-Utah rivalry games and, and that's their, their crazy atmospheres. This to me was like, it wasn't an 18,000 seat arena, it was only 11, 12,000, but I just remember running out and just from running through those tunnels, basically they were yelling so much, they were spitting on you. You heard a lot of malakas. You heard there was there were there were <laughs> yeah. I mean there were chants. There were drums. They were throwing confetti. Yep. And you're just like, wow, these these people like they live and breathe this. So like, you know, I've I've, I've spoken to teammates of mine that have been in you know really serious life and death situations in Europe during and after games. And that's how they kind of treat sport over there. It's like we're, we're going to toe the line and do the the what we can really do to rattle them without killing them, you know. Like and and that's what it was. Mm -hmm. And as a 19, 20 year old, you're like, oh my goodness, you hear stories. But once you're actually on that court, it was it was crazy. Yeah, and and that like e even uh, when I was fortunate enough to play over there, uh, you know, the 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 smoke, the drums, the flags, just just the atmosphere, and you know, growing men hanging over the sideline, you know, virtually doing everything by saying that he wants to kill you to create the atmosphere and try and intimidate you. Shaking the basket stanchions in Serbia, they used to, I mean, yep. Alex Marić, a teammate of mine, played over there. He said there'd be a dude. You know, in their rivalry game, shaking the, shaking the basket while the other team's shooting free throws. And you're just like, man, like, and that's just the way it is over there. But we end up getting pounded, funnily enough. We lose by a fair bit to Greece. And, and um, I remember the big fellow there, like, tormented me. He was you know, Papadopoulos, I think was his name. And he was just a solid yep. big, just knew how to use his body, wasn't athletic, just, just a typical veteran European player and just demolished me all on just seals, just using his body. And 
that was a wake up call for me to get you know get in the weight room a little bit more, which I was working on, and I just couldn't put it on all my freshman year. But we ended up moving on. We, we beat Angola, so kind of an easy beat for us. So we ticked the box there, and we're like, okay, we're moving on. We we get to the USA, um, and this was an interesting game for us. We, we went in kind of thinking, hey, we can we can kind of challenge these guys a little bit. We got that tape from the Italy game, and we end up going basically with with uh, you know. Uh, 70 80 percent of the game we played zone and and we played pretty well we were um i remember we were up up to going into the fourth quarter and we stayed in that zone and unfortunately for us alan iverson wasn't shooting the ball well that tournament they were they had a bunch of different lineups they had a superstar team but nothing was meshing and then he he exploded in that fourth he hit two or three threes for him and then mellow hit a three and then we, we ended up losing by 10 but um what do you what do you remember about, about that game yeah, it, it was one of those games where the zone was very effective for us for the majority of the game. Um, but, but from, uh, the vantage point I had, uh, you, you, you would have hoped we would have been able to somehow get a bigger lead instead of just being happy to have like a lead. Uh, the thing that I remember about that game, this was the US had D Wade, Carmelo and LeBron. Um, but it was coached by Larry Brown and those guys were pretty much rookies and Larry Brown is well known for not wanting to play his younger guys. Um, but those guys got to play in the second half and the athleticism and speed on the court just increased to a whole new level when those guys were on the floor. And I think that's when the momentum swing back into their favor. Um, because as you said, for the majority first three quarters, you would have said we had good momentum in that game. But I just remember when, as particularly LeBron, the, the distance and the space he covered on the floor, um, just brought a different dynamic to their defense. And like for us, we just become a little more hesitant and cautious about the passing and our shot selection and stuff like that. But then, as you said, Iverson, uh, you know, which he's done throughout his whole career, uh, stepped up and made, made some threes. Um, you know, not, not the world's greatest shooter, but he, he has played on the big stage and made big shots in his career. But yeah, it, it, look, we, we did our best. Um, you know, I just felt, uh, when we did have momentum, we should, we, we needed to try and create a bigger lead, you know, against them. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, because you knew that you knew the run was eventually going to come, like with all good teams. And if you you don't have that buffer, especially when it tightens up, and they're like you said, the Iversons of the world are used to playing in those you know crunch time minutes and making big shots. You want to have an extended lead, but that game then sets up our fourth game of the pool round. Now this is against Puerto Rico. Essentially for us, it's a must win to advance. Uh, we had one more game after that against Lithuania, and they were looking like they would finish first or second in our pool. We get to that Puerto Rico game. Um, I remember it was. We knew that what was at stake, and and this is where I I individually got into a little bit of an issue or, or a big issue essentially at the time. We're up, basically at all quarters. We're moving the ball. We're sharing it. Uh, we get up. We're up in the fourth quarter. We're up seventy eight seventy four with five minutes left. I had to go look all this up because I couldn't remember exactly. But I knew we we're up. The game ends up finishing eighty seven eighty two for them. So it means we scored four points in the last five minutes. I guess you remember me going crazy at Nelly. I mean that's kind of my feeling was that. Now we ran that shakes action drive for the, the, the last five minutes of that game. Ball stopped moving. It felt like it was the Shane Hill, Matty Nielsen show, which which it was. It might have just 
ended up like that most possessions and I don't think it was strategic but just the way it ended and it felt like you know Matty was taking a fair few shots and missed a fair few and, and that's how it goes but as a young fellow I, I was kind of frustrated about you know we lost this game because there was no more ball movement and, and we took some bad shots and I remember you know, I spoke about it at length of, of kind of going at Nelly on the floor, which you weren't on the floor at the time, and, and basically saying, "Hey Nelly, you know, why don't you why don't you dribble all inbound it to you? Just dribble the ball up and shoot it again." With forty seconds left, and um, Jason Smith kind of pulled me aside and said, "You know, chill out, chill out." But um, do you remember kind of the lead up to all that? I actually I don't remember uh, the the exchanges you guys had on the floor. I like I the thing that I remember about that game is, is it y- you know it really come down to whether that would be turn into a metal possibility for us or not. Uh, we as you said uh, we had great momentum the way we were playing. You, you felt like we were going to win the game, uh, and then. And, and then it did, uh, you know, the, the momentum of the game changed. Um, I do, I, I, I don't remember it like you because I wasn't on the floor. I hadn't even played a minute in the Olympics at this. Um, so, so what I was doing, uh, on the sideline, I was, I was like, look, I got to be a good teammate. I got to try and make this a great experience for me. I'm just going to, suggest things I'll, i i believe the coaching staff believed in my basketball iq and what i saw in the game so to the assistants i just give different ideas and i do remember um you know the flow of the game wh- whatever the flow was we, we kind of changed what our attack or what our purpose was of going at puerto rico um and and it was it it, it was nearly like we hit the skids um, it, it, you know, so, uh, there, there's, there's, you, you mentioned three guys that are all pretty confident in their own abilities. So I, I would like to be a fly on the wall at the free throw line when you guys were talking about it though. Yeah. I think Nelly was more in shock, you know, because, um, I was somewhat quiet in, in Athens. I wasn't, I was kind of trying to fit in with the vets and I wasn't as vocal as obviously I am later on in my career, but, um, I think Nelly was more stunned. He, he kind of said, "What? Like, what are you talking about?" And I and I repeated it again and went passive aggressive and said, "Yeah, mate, I'll just, just just take the next five shots. You might as well. You've taken the last ten or whatever." And exaggerated <laughs> a little bit. And I remember Jason Smith was in the free throw line box outs with me. Even the Puerto Ricans are looking at me like, "What the hell is wrong with this dude? He's going crazy." I mean, the game was over at that point. Yeah. There was there was thirty odd seconds left, and we we're down by. We we're in we we're in hack hack mode where we had to foul and put them on the line and come down and knock a three just to yeah. make it a game. But I remember getting to the locker room and I'm like, oh, shit, like I'm in some trouble. You know, I'm a fiery guy. But as soon as I did it, I'm like, oh, here we go. Something's going to happen here. But I was just so pissed that we lost, you know, and that was kind of, I guess it's kind of hard to relay that in that moment. Like, you know, I handled it wrong, but fuck, like we should have won the game. So, we get back and I think it was Jason Smith and, and Tony Ronaldson were I know Tony was fuming with me and Tony wasn't playing a lot and right, you know, rightfully so he had a, he had a right to kind of be, be, be pissed off because he's like this young fella is taking it for granted. Um, but, you know, they had a crack at me after the game and I kind of took that on the chin. I didn't really, I didn't say much. I was kind of in my shell and um, yeah, do you just remember the kind of the aftermath? I don't remember if it was either before or after Gorgon's talk, but Gorge didn't really address it, um, left it up to the players. Yeah, so I remember it's like <laughs> it's it's one of those things that you address when when the moments nearly pass. Like we all we all knew that that was our shot at getting in the final eight, chance of meddling, um, and obviously uh, a lot of people disappointed. Uh, I'm sure some guys were feeling it was their last Olympics. Some guys were thinking it's their chance uh, to show that they're on the international stage and a good player. Um, so there's a lot of emotion that goes into it. Um, 
you being a young guy and no one probably really knowing who you were probably sent a lot of mixed messages in like your body language, whatever words you spoke, you know, a lot of pride in the locker room. Um, so something, you know, it, it needed to be addressed. Uh, I thought it was addressed, but uh, it, I think it grew a little further from there, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it did. I mean, the next day, we had an off day. We are basically out of the Olympics. We had one game left, I think, which was the f- two days after that Puerto Rico yep. game. And yep. I had then was like, I need to get out of the village like for my, you know, kind of my well-being. I'm going to do something stupid. I'm going to say something stupid. Let me just get the hell out of here. My parents were in the village at the time, uh, in Athens at the time. So I had like decided I'll, I'll just pack my little bum bag, pack some shit, and just just start walking towards the bus terminal. And I remember walking past, kind of Gorge was across the road from me. I had headphones on, and I kind of saw him waving me down. But I was still like, you know, as a young fella, I guess all athletes go through it. I, I hung on to shit too long. Um, you know, a bad mm-hmm. loss like that or a run in, I could hold on to that for for weeks or months. You know, like it was that crazy. You know, it's just something that you had to work on as you kind of got older. And I remember him waving me down and I just gave him nothing and kept walking. So, I'd, I'd exited the village, turned my phone off <laughs> and just, just went rogue essentially. And um, that yeah. was that was in the morning. So, then I I, I kind of figured that they would be like, where the hell was, where the hell was Bogut at? We haven't seen him all day. You know, he's gone off the reservation. And then I finally turned my phone on when I was in the taxi back to the village at seven, eight, nine o'clock at night. And I think that then poured, you know, it poured fire on the whole situation, which was- 19, 20-year-old stupid decision on my behalf, my part, but um, something that I had to live with. But I remember getting back to the village. I think you were you were there in my room and you're like, mate, you know, kind of you gave me a little like, you know, settle down, you know, it'll all be all right. And then then for me, it was it was crisis meetings. I've, I've got mixed reports. So, I've met, I've talked and met with numerous people that were both coaches, assistant coaches, support staff and players. And I've got, I've got two or three different stories. What was kind of your inkling on what was going on? Yeah, um, <laughs> I, th- this is this is one of the things uh, that I uh, incidents that I really remember pretty good uh, from the Olympics. Uh, and then you know when you become a coach, these are the situations that you need to understand how to handle and deal with and all of that. And back then, that was kind of the era when uh, like leadership groups started. The word culture was becoming like a, a catch cry. Um, so, we we had like a leadership group with the boomers. Um, so, those guys got together. Obviously, a lot of people disappointed in like your behavior, um, immaturity of how you handled the situation. Uh, and from that, a lot of speculation goes on as to what what is going? What is going on in Andrew Bogut's life? Because uh, you know you're 19 years old. You had a you know you, you hit the international stage very well, uh, statistically pleasing. Everyone could see that you were going to be a very good player in the future and be you know a multi-time uh, you know Olympian, let alone an NBA player and the number one pick. So um, as as we as you know, the older guys and the leadership group talked about this and I, I was only ever involved with players and, you know, d- do we all wish we handled different situations better? Absolutely. But the one thing I said is let, let's think if we were 19 years old, just going through what we would, what you had gone through, would, would we be handling it any different? And, uh, you know, it's, e- it's easy for, um, you know, guys, veterans to look at it 
in in a lot of different ways but you also have to look at you know what someone is dealing with how they dealt with it and have they ever had to deal with it before so um i i had no idea because obviously there was a lot of talk about well we don't need him on the team well let's not start him next game it's bullshit that a 19 year old guy thinks he can behave like this but at the end of the day i'm not sure how many 19 year olds from australia uh, had ever gone through uh you know what you were going through at that time uh and i don't even know you know maybe some of the external things that were pulling at you as well because um you know you you have a european passport you're you're a very attractive player so you know that that's my recollection of it and if i remember correctly you started against lithuania <laughs> yeah cut it short but i i mean look i heard that um <laughs> I'd, I'd met with uh, ken, ken shields had come into my room basically booted you out we had a, yep. had a little powwow with ken and um he was kind of i guess i was still fuming about it he went at me a little bit about kind of disappearing for the day and then was like, mate, you're going to be, you're going to be an NBA player. This is going to be an X on your name for attitude. You don't want that. And I kind of was still a bit pouty and was like, yeah, whatever. I basically remember saying like, you guys do whatever you want to do. Like if you guys want to send me home, if you want to suspend me, if you want to not start me, do whatever you want to do. And I guess he was then pissed because he's like, I wasn't showing that much remorse. And from what I'd heard is there was a split camp in the coaching staff about, sending me home completely, not even playing against Lithuania or New Zealand. Um, there were calls with Basketball Australia at the time with the board. The board was obviously had a long-term view and knowing kind of, I guess, back to your point, my history with Basketball Australia wasn't great. I never made any of the, the teams. I was always kind of shunned and, and I was already on knife's edge with, with, with Basketball Australia just because I thought it was me versus the establishment as you do as a young fella. And it's um, <laughs> yeah. It then, it then ended up yeah. I mean, they basically I think BA kind of made the smart decision and said, well, if we do this, what are the repercussions in the future? And I can go on record and say, if they would have booted me off that team halfway through the tour, I would have got drafted still somewhere, and I would not never have played yeah. for Australia again because I because I'm I'm yeah. a fiery, stupid kid at nineteen twenty, and who knows what would have happened from there. Um, but I think. It worked out long term. I, I made my mistake. I took my kind of medicine, but I, I know there was there was a, a point where it could have went either way. But like you said, I started against Lithuania, played really well individually. We lost that game, and then and then didn't play much against New Zealand, and that was obviously a send off for um, for Shane Heal and a few other guys in their last campaign, Tony Ronaldson, Paul Rogers. So it was it was an interesting yeah. time, and it was you know there were a lot of things going on in my life which aren't an excuse um, with how I handled myself, but. Um, yeah, it definitely, it definitely could have went two different ways. Yeah, well, there, there was a lot of discussion about what was the right way to handle it. And uh, obviously, water under the bridge and uh, you playing for Australia was probably a beneficial thing for a lot of people. Yeah, and I guess the point of this podcast and the My Journey is my journey, you know, was rogue at times, which is the name of the podcast, obviously, but it, it wasn't traditional and, and I made a shitload of mistakes, which I put my hand up for. And that's kind of the important thing of, of looking back and saying, you know, I was a bit of a dickhead and I made some mistakes, but I guess it's more to show young kids that are listening and, and parents and, you know, there's going to be speed bumps. You'd know that as a as a recruiter for, for a college. There's going to be kids that have marks on their name, but 
do we look deeper into, well, maybe there's, you know, the parents got divorced at a certain age. Maybe they got bullied at high school, whatever it is, right? It's not an excuse, but yep. you, you got to kind of look into the baggage sometimes. And I think at least in Australia, it's, it's getting better. But back then it was, it was real easy to ride, you know, ride kids off just based on two or three instances. Yeah, definitely. For sure. So, you live the fight another day. That's it. That's it. Anyhow, we move on. So, we, we end up you know, Lithuania and New Zealand were, were kind of pointless games for us for the most part. You never never want to get to an Olympics competing for ninth and 10th. I can tell you that. That's kind of pointless. So, yep. we go through all that. I, I guess I know you were probably a little frustrated at times during the campaign. I know you were, you know, up, utmost professional, but you had to have been thinking that you could, could have got in some games just with your shooting ability, but it just wasn't meant to be. I mean, talk about how you kind of handled that and, and, and made sure you stayed positive. Yeah. Uh, so, like, kind of like what I touched on before is, you know, basketball is the only event that goes for the two weeks. So, you have every other day off. Um, so, uh, what I what I would do is uh, outside of our team practice because team practice was pretty light, you know the walkthroughs and all of that. So I would use the facilities uh, on the Olympic uh, um, uh, the Olympic Village. So I knew if I did get the opportunity, I was going to be in the best possible shape I could be in uh, to make the most of my opportunity and. Um, you know, after the first couple games when I knew, when I could kind of see how this was going because, look, it's a 40-minute game. There's 12 guys. Not everyone's going to play. Um, so, I guess after I just kind of had my uh, little silent moment where I was disappointed, uh, then I was like, well, what can I do to try and help help this team? And I just felt like what I could potentially see from the bench if I could relay that message to Choco or Ken Shields and they got Gorge's ear. Maybe it helps us win, um, you know, because the thing the thing about it all, is there's never been an Australian team to win a, an Olympic medal. So, to be a part of a team that could win an Olympic medal, uh, that that's the thing that I always kept in the back of my mind. And as I tell players today, at some stage, you're going to get an opportunity. So, you better be ready to take that opportunity. So, uh, I wanted to stay ready and be ready for the opportunity when it come. Um, but then the other thing I did, I tried to go and watch as many Aussies or go to Olympic um, events that I really appreciated and like. So, uh, I could get a, a, you know, some type of uh, reality check going and seeing other people go through what they go through. Yeah, I mean, it's a good, it's a, it's a really good message. I think it's um, something that's really important that you're not always going to get the playing time you want. But I mean, I I saw a lot in the NBA. You know, a lot of times those 11, 12, 13 guys will take that opportunity for granted, get thrown in a game and first possession, screw up a scouting report straight away that was like a point of emphasis and then they come out of the game, they don't play again for a month, you know. So, I think it's a very important message and a good one. But um, move on to the the fun and the shenanigans that happen at the end of an Olympic Games. I remember we, we play our game against New Zealand. Uh, we win that. We go back to the village and I remember converting our – our lounge room essentially was converted into a an area just full of full of drinks. We try, I think we snuck some drinks in there, and there was a bunch of liquor. And guys started drinking, and and there were a few things that happened. I think the first one that I remember um, that I put in the notes. I don't know if you remember. Do you remember the Bakovich story? Uh, I like I remember the story, but I was yeah, I, I was not around for that uh, that doozy. Uh, but, but yeah, once again, three you know, back of it, Shane Hill and Nelly, Matt Nielsen involved in a in an incident that uh, 
you know, I guess Susie come and save the day for him, huh? Yeah, well, basically ended up getting her nose popped out of place by by someone, <laughs> a rogue Greek bloke at a bar where she was helping Nelly and um, and Shane. And I wasn't there neither, so I hear it secondhand, but I can confirm that uh, Susie had a shiner the next morning. So, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that was from the broken nose. That was one of the fun ones. You and I went out to a pub. Um, I'm not sure if you remember that. We went out to a pub. I don't know yep. where it was. We caught the train together. Remember you had your bu- uh-huh. you had your bucket hat on. I had you know whatever I was wearing, some dumb outfit that a nineteen year old wears. And um, <laughs> I think I got into it with a fella from New Zealand. I think it was a javelin for throw or something. Was just like just in me. I don't know what he was in me about, but I remember a little scuffle ensued, and I threw one on his chin, and we kind of left after that. Do you remember that? I do. I do. You got into the little scrap, and then uh, I, me and Perro Cameron. Uh, we're talking with each other because I got to know Perro a little bit. Not a guy I was going to fight with was Perro. Um, <laughs> but he knew the New Zealand guy that that you landed one on. So, he comes over and he kind of just picks both you guys up and shakes you off a little bit and says, calm down, you idiots. You wanted to, uh, you know, flex a little bit, um, you know, but we resolved the issue. Perro was very cordial and we just moved on about our night. But, uh, you, you know, I, I I look back at that incident and as you do your podcasts and that, um, you know, that's one of those things when, uh, you know, I remember the guy, I don't remember what the guy said, but he was pretty much having a crack at you because you were young and you had a good Olympics um, you know, and then Perro was there obviously trying to help his Kiwi buddy out. Um, but you know, we got it taken care of and, uh, no, no harm, no foul. Yeah. And I remember the Greek security that they, they had a, um, they had a really good process over there where they would basically see any scuffles and remove both of you and then be like, Hey, continue it outside then. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, they did that and then the blood calmed down and, and it all kind of was water under a bridge. But I remember, I do remember that hanging out with you as, as a roomie. I mean, anything you want, anything else you can remember, like your fondest memories of that tour or anything else that we've missed? Oh, man. I, I, well, for me personally, I scored two points at the Olympics and it was against Lithuania. And as I shot it, it, it sounded like the referee's whistle. Um, and the game, everyone kind of stopped except for me and I shot the ball. And it ended up being a guy in the crowd with like a, you know, one of those whistles or something. So, as as they kind of were figuring out what was going on, I was like, come on, I can't get my only bucket of the tournament taken away from me here. Um, so, fortunate enough, I, I scored it. I got two points at the Olympics. The other thing, look, that I remember and I'll, I'll always hold fondly is the amount of games that you and I just went and watched outside of Australia. Like, I don't know whether you remember, but like wh- whether you were there or not, I would have went and watched every game of basketball at the Olympics. But uh, as you and I got to understand each other, I could see that you really appreciated watching a lot of good basketball. Um you know, and just sitting there because it like, it, you know, Argentina won. They were very good. It, Italy got second in the US third. So, uh, you know, I, I just at, from that moment on, I was like, man, like this kid really likes hoops. He's going to be successful. Um, you, you know, so that's a fun memory. The other one was uh, Utah got a new head coach in between, Ray Giacoletti. Yep. Uh, and, and I actually know Ray, still talk to him to this day. And uh, I remember I had to find a way to get him into the Olympic Village so he could weave his magic to convince you that you could be a success at Utah under him as a coach. 
Yeah, because yeah, the transition happened while I was at Olympics. He he just flown to Australia a month before to meet my parents. He did that on the first day that he got his job. We talk about it actually in episode four. We actually get him on, which is great. And um, yeah, it was in, it was an interesting time. But look, Jr. John, really, whatever you want to call it, you uh, you being obviously a, a big part of my career, being that that calming influence and my roommate. Um, we kept in touch ever since you, you know, kind of went your way. I went my way from that Olympic team. You've been kind of coaching more in the States. I've been all over the world. We've kept in touch. You were the innovator with the podcasts. I'll give you the shout out. You were, uh, what, <laughs> what year was your podcast? What year was it? 2009. 2009, man. 10 years ago before you, no one even knew what a podcast was and yourself and DJ Rod up there in Townsville. I came onto your yep. show and, and you've returned the favor. So, I really appreciate it. Oh, no, no worries at all. They were fun times and I enjoy coming on these and every week listening to yours. So, good luck with it all and shit, good luck with your career after, after being on court. Afterlife. Thanks, JR. No worries. Thank you. Wrapping that campaign up. It was an honor to play with a lot of those legends, even though at times they probably didn't think that um, I appreciated it as much as I should have. I definitely remember the quirkiest things like those stories I just told you and, and the different things that those guys did. But a lot of those guys were integral to the program's tradition and culture and the rookie nights and all those things that continue to go on to this day. They were an integral part of it. You know, your Shane Hills, your Tony Ronaldson, your Jason Smith. So, I, um, I really appreciated that and- Look, our, our, our program was essentially going into a transition period because those, a lot of those legends were gone. I was kind of the face moving forward of the national team. And, and besides myself, there wasn't a whole lot of, um, you know, penciled in makes for the national team moving forward. We didn't really know kind of who would be the next guy. I mean, Dave Anderson, myself, maybe a few other guys, Jason Smith got a few more campaigns, but it wasn't a case of the, the 90s. To the early 2000s boomers where you you know you knew nine out of ten nine out of 12 guys were, were locks to make the team and the other three were, were coin flips but um move on from that anyhow fly back directly from greece with all my shit three bags got a bunch of new olympic gear which was great because didn't have a lot of clothes and a lot of money so i had a bunch of olympic gear which I, I wore around the university of utah bright yellow and bright green and gold different shirts and shorts looking like an idiot um the, the school colors were red mind you but um I was who I was, right? But fly back to, to Utah, three bags, and then get ready to commence my sophomore year. So this was just a quick, you know, episode to discuss the Athens Olympics and the trials and tribulations of my first Olympic Games. And I hope you enjoyed it. I mean, there's some some good behind the scenes stories there. One other thing, I'd like to thank everyone for supporting this my journey series through Rogue Bogues podcast. The numbers are bigger than I thought they would. I thought this would be a really specific kind of crowd that would listen to these, but it seemed seeming to hit a lot of different demographics, um, a lot of cool stories in there outside of basketball. So I appreciate everyone sharing it. appreciate everyone tuning in. Remember Rogue Bogues, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, all that fun stuff. Give us a subscribe, a like, get engaged with us. We do a lot of different um, Q&As for different portions of the podcast. So continue to tell everyone about it and hopefully we'll keep pumping these out. Thank you.